presents In God's Image, a sermon by KMUCC member Dave Parker, presented on Sunday, August 25th, 2019. So your husband comes to hear you preach, <laughs> and it's your birthday, and I'm here. That's what's, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't plan it this way, not at all. In your bulletin, it says, if there are dreams about a beautiful South Africa... There are also roads that lead to their goal. Two of these roads could be named goodness and forgiveness. That is my t-shirt. I bought this t-shirt in Johannesburg, South Africa at the um, Apartheid Museum. And it's easy to find symbols of racism in their past in South Africa. You can, uh, mementos like this t-shirt are readily available and everywhere. It's very open. So I actually wrote it down. I wrote this whole thing down. I know what you are thinking. Who am I and what am I doing here? Especially when we have a perfectly good minister sitting right here. Well, I want you to, and especially today of all days, for crying out loud. Well, I want you to know that I'm wondering the same thing. This has not been on my bucket list. I've never preached a sermon. But I'm willing to try most things. So if I had any sense at all, I'd be sitting right over there in my assigned seat with my wife, Cindy. (laughs) One of the amazing things about our congregation is how many retired ministers are members. I think that speaks to the character and mission of all of us. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those retired preachers, and I've never preached a sermon. But I have taught school for 44 years. And many people have accused me of being quite preachy in my lectures. So maybe that qualifies me to be here. So here's what happened. Last fall, Cindy and I took an incredible trip to South Africa. It was a guided tour, and we saw a part of our planet that was heretofore unimaginable. Later in December, we took another vacation to Charleston, South Carolina. The reason we chose Charleston was because that's where the dart landed when we threw it against the map. We had an excellent time during our week-long visit there as well. So at some point this past year, I mentioned to Jeannie that we had visited both places. South Africa, with its history of racism, apartheid, and the ugly history of the ruling white minority, and Charleston, where the first shots of the Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter, and slavery was alive in our country, front and center. The comparison between the two countries and their history of racism were very obvious and apparent. Jeannie said, I think there's a sermon in there. (laughs) I repeat, I think there's a sermon in there. I was inspired. I have given my minister, to whom I love and admire, a subject for a sermon. I can't wait for next week when I will hear the sermon about the subject which I inspired. So after the next week's sermon, she asked me, how's that sermon coming along? So here I am. And I'm speaking about racism, not the subject with which I am infinitely more familiar, which would be music. 
But these two excursions we went on really touched a nerve with me. And they prompt the question, how can human beings on this planet, God's creation, be so cruel to other human beings simply because of the color of their skin? Aren't we all created in God's image? I do not have an answer to this question. I just shake my head. Also, it should be noted that this topic came up many months ago before racism became such a hot topic in the news, both nationally and locally. First, a little travelogue. Before we went to South Africa, all that I knew about the country was that it was an incredibly racist country ruled by a minority of white people. I read a couple of books about the black majority being forced to live in the slums, and I was appalled about the conditions in which the blacks were forced to live. We heard from other travelers that this was a fantastic place to visit, so away we went. We were there approximately two weeks and we traveled with a group which was led by a group leader. He was a local South African who was white but had lived through the years of apartheid. During the transition to a democratic country, our tour consisted of three distinct and different areas. The southern tip of South Africa, which was Cape Town and the surrounding areas, the central country, which was rural and where we went on three different safaris, and lastly, the northern part of the country around Johannesburg. Am I going too fast? <laughs> no one's fallen asleep yet. We're doing well. Here's what we discovered. South, Cape Town is beautiful. It really is. It's amazing. Rolling hills, beautiful vineyards, and botanical gardens. It's a city about the size of Portland, located on the southern tip of Africa, where the Atlantic and Indian Oceans converge. The central core of the city is like most western cities. Imagine downtown Portland, but you don't have to travel very far away from the central city to see an ostrich walking in a field, or a wildebeest, or especially at the Cape of Good Hope, a baboon who will steal your lunch if you're not careful. In Cape Town, we actually walked on a beach with penguins. That's right, penguins, not in a zoo. The central part of our trip was the rural area where we traveled by bus to a water safari where we saw Brazilian monkeys, crocodiles, and especially hippopotamus. We traveled by boat on a river which contained dozens of hippos which were apparently showing off with their mouths wide open to demonstrate something. I don't know what it is they're supposed to be demonstrating, but it's, their mouths are wide open. Next, we went to Swaziland, where we rode in a Jeep on dirt roads where we saw rhinos, giraffes, and Cape buffaloes, and more. Thirdly, we went to the crown jewel of South Africa, Kruger National Park. It is roughly the size of Switzerland, and we have more animal stories that I can fit into this time slot. We saw the animals that you would expect to see, elephants, rhinoceros, monkeys, lions, hyenas, giraffes, and many, many impala. All the other animals like to eat the impala, by the way, including the humans. Cindy and I have many more cool animal stories which we will save for coffee hour. Do approach my wife and ask her to tell you about the female lion and the Cape buffalo. You're welcome. 
The third section of our trip really gets to the heart of racism in South Africa, our visit to Johannesburg. Johannesburg is a very large city like Los Angeles. We visited many historical areas of racism and apartheid in this city. I will save these stories for later. My next travel log is about Charleston, South Carolina. Having not spent much time in the South, Charleston fit my image of a typical southern town. About the size of Eugene, Oregon, it was very pretty right on the Atlantic Ocean. We were not on a guided tour, but we managed to see most of the sites in the area. Fort Sumter, a plantation, and a slave museum, as well as the usual shops and restaurants. It appeared that Charleston was doing very fine and was very white. In 1861, the first shots of the Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter in Charleston. And if you remember from your US history class in high school, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. It was a presidential proclamation, not an act of Congress. It freed 3.5 million African Americans. I'm leaving out a lot of information about this time period because I only have 22 minutes. I've been timing genie sermons and they average 22 minutes. <laughs> but I'm right on target. Although last week was just 17 and you're trying to trick me. So after the slaves were supposedly freed and the North won the Civil War, race relations in our country were just fine. Well, of course, not. Though technically free, human beings with black skin were not treated equally. In 1896, so we had 1861 um, and then 63, 61 the first shots, 63 emancipation, and now we're at 96. The Supreme Court um, ruled in the case Plessy versus Ferguson that segregation was just fine as long as the infrastructure for whites and blacks were the same, separate but equal. These were called Jim Crow laws, not until the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was the word separate taken out of the jargon, separate but equal. I've condensed 100 years of our history into one paragraph, so while I'm at it, I would like to digress further and mention a subject that I do know a little bit about. I taught at the University of Portland for 16 years. One of the courses which I taught was jazz history. Let me tell you, this art form, one of the only forms of music indigenous to our country, is deeply formed because of the racist policies which were practiced. In the middle 1700s and 1800s, an area of New Orleans called Congo Square was designated as an area in which black, enslaved black Americans could congregate for a few hours on a Sunday afternoon. What this did was to create jazz with whatever primitive instruments they could get their hands on through improvisation, they created a new art form. Later, during the Reconstruction period, which is the time period immediately after the Civil War, Louisiana passed Code 111, which stated that any person with even the slightest bit of black ancestry was to be considered black. In 
therefore subject to discrimination from the whites. This greatly affected the Creole people, most of whom had some form of black ancestry. They were French, well-educated doctors, lawyers, and business people. Their musical skills were refined in classical traditions, and they were expert music readers. Suddenly, they were forced into the receiving end of discrimination. Gradually, the raw beginnings of the black jazz movement and the more refined Creole skills blended together to create jazz, which became jazz as we know it today. Meanwhile, in South Africa, the ruling race, mostly white people of Dutch descent, had installed apartheid, which is a word meaning separate but equal development for whites and non-whites alike. Does that sound familiar? Life was miserable for the black majority. There was not even a semblance of separate but equal. The Afrikaner, and this spelled like African but with a K instead of a C in the middle. The Afrikaner, uh, it refers to, start over. The Afrikaner refers to the white majority. The party established four primary racial groups. Whites slash Europeans, Africans, coloreds, and Asians. The last three groups were known as non-whites. Chinese were later added to the Asian Indian classification, while Japanese business people were promoted to honorary whites after they had invested hundreds of billions of dollars in a Toyota car manufacturing plant. Non-whites were believed to be less developed and to be inferior to the white race in every respect. They had to be kept separate from the quotation mark, God-ordained white South Africans to protect the superior race. Non-whites could not own land, health services were inferior, education was inferior, and past laws were enacted, which meant that the non-whites could not travel to a location which was not in their assigned living area unless they carried a government-approved pass. In his book, Born a Crime, comedian Trevor Noah describes his life growing up with such oppression. The book title comes from a law which prohibited whites and non-whites from having children. His mother was black and his father was white, thus Trevor Noah's mere existence is a crime. It's a good book too, by the way. When I was younger, I always wondered how a white minority could dominate a black majority. What I didn't know then was that the majority did try to fight back. The ANC, or the African National Council, fought back against apartheid policies, at first peacefully and then later with violence. A young Nelson Mandela became spokesman for the ANC until his arrest in 1963. He spent 27 years in prison. His book, Long Walk to Freedom, profiles his life. During his time in prison, the country underwent many changes, sometimes at his direction, often with the slogan, Free Mandela. The president of the country during Mandela's years was P.W. Botha, a staunch supporter of apartheid. In 1990, Botha suffered, suffered a stroke and died. His successor was Frederick de Klerk, 
who was sympathetic to abolishing apartheid. Nelson Mandela was released February 11th, 1991 from Victor Vester Prison. Our tour group visited that prison, where a stat it's no longer a prison, where a statue of Mandela sits with his fist outstretched as a symbol of black freedom. We also visited Mandela's home in Soweto, which is a suburb of Johannesburg, and Desmond Tutu's home in Soweto. In his book, The Book of Forgiving, Tutu says, it was not easy for Nelson Mandela to spend 27 years in prison. But when people say to me, what a waste it was, I say, no, it was not a waste. It took 27 years for him to be transformed from an angry, unforgiving young radical into an icon of reconciliation, forgiveness, and honor who could lead the country back from the brink of civil war and self-destruction. In 1991, Mandela was elected president of South Africa. In 1993, Mandela and de Klerk were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Our tour guide said that those two prevented a massive civil war. Backing up in time, June 16, 1976, a black high school student named Hector Peterson was killed in a peaceful student protest. The students were protesting against the language in which they were taught. That language was African, with the K. The language was not used anywhere else in the world and was created by the oppressive white Dutch party. The students wanted to be taught in the English language. Our group visited the area now called Hector Peterson Square and the street intersection where he was killed. There were approximately 200 students killed that day by police. That year, 451 protesters were killed by police. Moving forward to our tour last September, we visited a museum, a spectacular museum, which lays out the facts and figures of what has happened in South Africa during apartheid. As we entered the facility, we were given random numbers. Even numbers were allowed to enter through the white entrance. Odd numbers were required to enter through the non-white entrance. The non-whites were not allowed to speak, acknowledge, or even make eye contact with the whites in keeping with the apartheid policies. Incidentally, I was in the white line and Cindy ended up in the non-white line. Most of the people in the white line treated this exercise with amusement while the people in the non-white line genuinely felt uncomfortable. And this only lasted for 45 seconds. Of course, there were 45 seconds when Cindy was not allowed to speak to me. So. <laughs> the museum was a wealth of information. All of the apartheid laws were printed in chronological order to show that every time the non-white majority tried to expect any type of equality, the white minority would pass another law to squelch such subversive action. The museum was very large and expansive. Here's the feeling that I had from visiting the facility. This is my own non-scientific observation, but I felt like the South Africans were showing that the racism of the past is a thing of the past, and that they preserve the symbols of the past the very recent past, 
as a way of remembering to not repeat the mistakes of the past. One of the statements of the museum is, a history forgotten is a future lost. So how did this country transition so quickly from racist oppression to a free country? The major structural component was the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The TRC focused on nonviolent reparations without copying the Nuremberg trials after World War II, which focused on revenge. This group offered peace rather than revenge. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions have been set up in other countries with varying degrees of success. TRC commissions tend to lean towards restorative rather than retributive justice models. The TRC helped the country move from racism to relative peace in a fairly short period of time. Okay, let's move back to America and re revisit our time in Charleston, South Carolina. As I mentioned, we went to a slave museum. This had a profound impact on me. This was not a monument to erected to honor a group of people. It was an actual brick building where slaves were bought and sold. There are many slave museums in the U.S., with the largest at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. The old Slave Mart Museum, the one in Charleston, is where 35 to 40 percent of slaves entering the U.S. did enter. It was a small two-story building sandwiched between a couple of upscale clothing stores. I was obsessed with touching those brick walls. I, I tried to imagine the pain and suffering that so many people before me had felt while touching those same walls. In my mind, I could hear the screaming and crying. It was very emotional. I again wondered how any human being could be so cruel to another human being. Among the displays were legging irons, handcuffs, items of clothing, and other relics which were worn by the slaves. Especially memorable was a chart which showed the price of a human. Young males were the most valuable, females less valuable. An 18-year-old male was worth $50. At age 25, he was worth $40. At age 30, his value dropped to $25. By the time he reached 50 years of age, he was worthless. He had no value. Next, we visited the Magnolia Plantation. It was truly an amazingly beautiful place with Spanish moss hanging from the trees, jungle-like vegetation, a main house which looked like the setting for Gone with the Wind, history markers from the Civil War and Revolutionary War, and waterways with alligator warnings. What stood out to me the most was the slave quarters. They had been preserved since the 1850s. The buildings were wooden shacks with no means of heat, sanitation, or any sign of any human condition. The human beings who were forced to occupy these dwellings were forced to work 10 to 16 hour days in the cotton fields under unhealthy and dangerous conditions. Children as young as three were put to work. Death by snake bite, disease, and alligators was common. Again, it was as if I could hear the walls of the shacks crying and screaming. Recently, the Washington Post newspaper ran a story which quoted from uh, quoted visitors 
quoted from visitors to a similar plantation. Their comments were all from white people. An example was, would not recommend. Tour was all about how hard it was for the slaves. So racism is a hot topic in today's news. I'm not speaking on behalf of the UCC or the leadership of Kairos, but my opinion is that what our country's leadership is doing regarding immigration on the southern border is incredibly racist. The administration has portrayed brown-skinned people as brown-skinned immigrants as rapists and criminals. I am of the opinion that if it were white people who wanted to immigrate to America, our administration would welcome them with open arms. We would not separate children from their parents, make it impossible for them to reunite. Listen to what Brian Kilmeade of the Fox News Channel said, referring to putting children in concentration camps on the southern border. Kilmeade said, like it or not, these are not our kids, and we can show compassion if we like, but it's not like Trump was doing it to the people of Idaho or Texas. For an interesting point of view, listen to what the Reverend Stephen Charleston has to say about immigration from the point of view of a Native American. A Native American. Here's what he says. The irony of the recent national debate over who should stay in this country as a real American is not lost on those of us who were always here. It would be easy to make the joke that we Native Americans gather secretly at an undisclosed location on the reservation, bring out the drum and begin chanting, send them home. That's funny because it illustrates the historical fact that no person of European ancestry can claim to be an owner of this land except by right of conquest. What is, what is this recent spectacle really about? It's not about who is a real American, since only a handful of us can make that claim legitimately, but about who dominates, who has the power. It's about control as it is much, as much as it is about color. The same tragic need to exercise power over others through racism that fueled white colonialism is still alive and seeking to control everything around it. That is what we as indigenous people would like to see go away, that sad need to control rather than to share. So if you want a Native American view on the recent situation, here it is. You all can stay, but let racism and injustice be banished from our midst once and for all. That is what is un-American. So what are we supposed to do? After all, the southern border is far away. South Africa is very far away. It was a 17-hour plane ride from Johannesburg to Atlanta. And then you're just in Atlanta. And we live in a predominantly white community. So listen to Stephen Matson, who wrote this article for the Sojourners magazine. The article is titled, Racism Isn't a Partisan Issue, It's a Sin. He writes, racism is a sin. Racism is the antithesis of holiness because it denies the divine image of God in others. To engage in racism is to engage in wickedness and to passively ignore it and refuse to condemn it is to be guilty of complicity. As followers of Jesus, in order to love our neighbor as ourselves, we must be passionately anti-racist. This requires us to denounce racism wherever we see it, 
whether it comes from politicians, pastors, or parishioners. Silence is not an option. Imagine if Jesus had refused to intervene when an angry mob brought a woman to him prepared to stone her to death. Instead, Jesus confronted the crowd and saved her life. Jesus bravely and boldly stood up for women, children, Gentiles, Samaritans, the poor, and the sick. By taking a stand, he also became unpopular, chased by mobs, hated by religious leaders, and ultimately arrested and crucified on the cross. There's a long and horrible history of Christendom oppressing others, whether it was the colonization of the New World and oppression of indigenous tribes, slavery, the KKK, internment camps, or segregation. Christians have regularly aided and abetted racism under the banner of Christ. Today is no different. The president has used racism to spread his political agenda and American Christendom has been an eager participant. Many white Christians won't publicly deny racism because they mistakenly categorize it as a partisan issue rather than an undisputed sin. They view the quotes, videos, and reporting of racism as fake news, thereby making it nearly impossible to contradict anything that doesn't align with their worldview. Hardly anyone personally claims to be a, a racist, and in an era where truth and morality have been co-opted by political rhetoric, moral rel relativism is the new theology of conservative Christians. So while most will admit racism is wrong, they won't dare betray their political allegiances by condemning it. But racism isn't something that's acceptable within certain contexts. It's a sin. The idolatry political allegiance has changed the definition of what is now considered morally right and wrong. Many Christians have abandoned Christ's great command to love others as we would like to be loved ourselves, choosing instead to turn a blind eye to the rejection of refugees deportation of immigrants, denial of asylum, separation of families, assault of women, and blatant racism. Some Christians have even accepted and praised these hateful actions. To confront evils as Christ did would be to betray their political party. This rampant form of Christianity isn't a faith in Jesus, but rather a faith in Trump. If your churches, pastors, and fellow Christians have remained silent toward racism, they're not only woefully failing to represent Jesus, they're also participating in the sin of denying the image of God that's divinely bestowed in each human being. God help us. That was a long quote, so I'm, I hope you can forgive me for that. I think I've exceeded 22 minutes, I apologize. I didn't even get to tell you about some of the really cool animal stories in South Africa. I was going to tell you about the two, two giraffes that we saw fighting with one another. It's really amazing how in the wild, two giraffes, they're gigantic, and they're fighting with each other, and I'd like to tell you about it, but I don't have any more time. So, <laughs> so uh, you can talk to Cindy or I at the coffee hour. Do I need to say something else now? Like, let the church say amen, that thing? Do I do that? And so, let the church please say amen. Thank you. Listen, listen, 
besar 